0: the power of shame on the 20th of december 2013 a young woman justine sacker was waiting in heathrow airport before boarding a flight to africa to while away the time she sent a tweet in questionable taste about the hazards of catching aids there was no immediate response and she boarded the plane unaware of the storm that was about to break Eleven hours later on landing, she discovered that she had become an international cause célèbre. Her tweet and responses to it had gone viral. Over the next 11 days, she would be Googled more than a million times. She was branded a racist and dismissed from her job. Overnight, she had become a pariah. The new social media have brought about a return to an ancient phenomenon, public shaming. Two recent books, John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and Jennifer Jackett's book Is Shame Necessary, have both discussed it. Jackett believes it's a good thing, it can be a way of getting public corporations to behave more responsibly, for example, whereas Ronson highlights the dangers. It's one thing to be shamed by the community of which you're a part, quite another by a global network of strangers who know nothing about you or the context in which your act took place. That is more like a lynch mob than the pursuit of justice. Either way, this gives us a way of understanding the otherwise bewildering phenomenon of tsara'at, the condition dealt with at length in last week's parasha and this. It's variously been translated as leprosy, skin disease or scaly infection. Yet there are formidable difficulties in identifying it with any known disease. First, its symptoms don't correspond to Hansen's disease, otherwise known as leprosy. Second, as described in the Torah, it affects not only human beings, but also the walls of houses, furniture and clothes. There's no known medical condition that has this property. Besides, the Torah is a book about holiness and right conduct. It's not a medical text. Even if it were, as David Svi Hoffman points out in his commentary, the procedures to be carried out don't correspond to those that would be done if tzorayat were a contagious disease. Finally, tzorayat, as described in the Torah, is a condition that brings not sickness but impurity, tum'ah, health and purity are different things altogether. The sages decoded the mystery by relating our Parsha to the actual instances in the Torah where someone was afflicted by tzaraat. One happened when Miriam spoke against her brother Moses. Another occurred when Moses at the burning bush said to God that the Israelites wouldn't believe in him. His hand briefly turned as leprous as snow. The sages regarded tsarat as a punishment for lashon hara, evil speech, speaking negatively about or denigrating another person. This helped them explain why the symptoms of tsarat mould, discoloration, could affect walls, furniture, clothes and human skin. These were, in effect, a sequence of warnings or punishments. First, God warned the offender by sending a sign of decay to the walls of his house. If the offender repented, the condition stopped there. If he failed to do so, his furniture was affected, then his clothes, and finally his skin. How are we to understand this? Why was evil speech regarded as so serious an offence that it took these strange phenomena to point to its existence? And why was it punished this way rather than another? It was the anthropologist Ruth Benedict and her book about Japanese culture, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, that popularized a distinction between two kinds of society, guilt cultures and shame cultures. Ancient Greece, like Japan, was a shame culture. Judaism and the religions influenced by it, most obviously Calvinism, were guilt cultures. The differences between them are significant in shame cultures what matters is the judgment of others acting morally means conforming to public roles rules and expectations you do what other people expect you to do you follow society's conventions and if you fail to do so society punishes you by subjecting you to shame ridicule disapproval humiliation and ostracism in guilt cultures What matters is not what other people think, but what the voice of conscience tells you. Living morally means acting in accordance with internalised moral imperatives. You shall and you shall not. What matters is what you know to be right and wrong. People in shame cultures are other-directed. They care about how they appear in the eyes of others, or, as we would say today, about their image. People in guilt cultures are inner-directed. They care about what they know about themselves in moments of absolute honesty. Even if your public image is undamaged, if you know you've done wrong, it will make you feel uneasy. You'll wake up at night troubled. Oh, coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me, says Shakespeare's Richard III. My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Shame is public humiliation, but guilt is inner torment. The emergence of a guilt culture in Judaism flowed from its understanding of the relationship between God and humankind. In Judaism, we are not actors on a stage with society as the audience and the judge because we can fool society, but we can't fool God. All pretense and pride, every mask and persona, the cosmetic cultivation of public image are irrelevant. As Tanakh says in the first book of Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Shame cultures are collective and conformist. By contrast, Judaism, the archetypal guilt culture, emphasizes the individual and his or her relationship with God. What matters is not whether we conform to the culture of the age, but whether we do what is good, just, and right. This is is what makes the law of Tzorad fascinating, because according to the sages' interpretation, it constitutes one of the rare instances in the Torah of punishment by shame rather than guilt. The appearance of mold or discoloration on the walls of a house was a public signal of private wrongdoing. It was a way of saying to everyone who lived there or visited there, bad things have been said in this place. Little by little, the signals Came ever closer to the culprit, appearing next on his bed or chair, then on his clothes, then on his skin, until eventually he found himself diagnosed as defiled. The Torah says, then says this about him. When a person has the mark of the defiling disease, his clothing must have a tear in it, he must go without a haircut, and he must cover his head down to his lips. Unclean, unclean, he must call out. As long as he has the mark, he shall remain unclean. Since he is unclean, he must remain alone, and his place shall be outside the camp. Now these are quintessential expressions of shame. First comes the stigma. The public marks of disgrace or dishonour, the torn clothes, the unkempt hair and the rest. Then comes the ostracism, temporary exclusion from the normal affairs of society. These have nothing to do with illness and everything to do with social disapproval. This is what makes the law of Tsarat so hard to understand at first because it's one of the rare appearances of public shame in a non-shame, guilt-based culture. It happened, though, not because society had expressed its disapproval, but because God himself was signaling that it should do so. Why specifically in the case of Lashon Hara, evil speech? Because speech is what holds society together. Anthropologists have argued that language evolved among humans precisely in order to strengthen the bonds between them so that they could cooperate in larger groupings than any other animal. What sustains cooperation is trust. This allows me and encourages me to make sacrifices for the group, knowing that others can be relied on to do likewise. And this is precisely why La Hara is so destructive. It undermines trust it makes people suspicious about one another it weakens the bonds that hold the group together if unchecked lashon hara will destroy any group it attacks a family a team a community even a nation hence its uniquely malicious character it uses the power of language to weaken the very thing language was brought into being to create namely the trust that sustains the social bond. That is why the punishment for Lashon Hora was to be temporarily excluded from society by public exposure, the signs of Tzorat on the walls, the furniture, the clothes and the skin, the stigmatisation and shame, the torn clothes and so on, and ostracism being forced to live outside the camp. It's difficult, perhaps impossible, to punish the malicious gossiper using the normal convention of law, courts, and the establishment of guilt. This can be done in the case of Motsi Shem Ra, which means libel or slander, because these are cases of making a false statement. La Shon is much more subtle. It's done not by falsehood, but by insinuation. There are many ways of harming a person's reputation without actually telling a lie. Someone accused of Losh and Hara can easily say, I didn't say it, if I said it, I didn't mean it, and even if I meant it, I didn't say anything that was untrue. Now, the best way of dealing with people who poison relationships without actually uttering falsehoods is by naming, shaming, and shunning them. That, according to the sages, is what Sarat miraculously did in ancient times. It no longer exists in the form described in the Torah, But the use of the Internet and social media as instruments of public shaming illustrates both the power and the danger of a culture of shame. Only rarely does the Torah invoke it, and in the case of the Mitzorah, only by an act of God, not society. Yet, the moral of the Mitzorah remains. Malicious gossip, Lashon Hara, undermines relationships, erodes the social bond, and damages trust. It deserves to be exposed and shamed. Never speak ill of others and stay far away from those who do. Shabbat Shalom.